At the end of Jesus' life, he prays for us, and he, uh, it's recorded in John 17. Here are his words. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, just as the Father in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Do you think God has answered Jesus' prayer? Has the church over 2,000 years displayed the goal of this prayer? Does the reality of 22,000 denominations, that's not an exaggeration, 22,000 denominations mean the prayer has not been answered? Jesus prays that we should be one as the Father and Jesus are one. How close are the Father and Jesus? How much have they loved each other from all eternity? What kind of unity have they experienced? And now Jesus prays for us that they may be one so that why? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, there is a kind of unity that exists that Jesus prays for that proclaims the love of God to everyone else. And I, I, that doesn't mean that every denomination should merge or that distinctions aren't wrong or we should just hold hands and sing kumbaya together every week. Everyone has to make choices, but there is a way to talk about what does this mean to answer Jesus' prayer in a local church and what does this mean to answer Jesus' prayer as we relate to Christians around the world? I mean, our church, let's, I'm going to be honest with you, does this way better than most places. There are various positions. You heard it in the, I didn't tell him what to say, by the way, and not to hit the pulpit so hard. Um, I didn't tell him to say this. There are various positions in our church that are held open-handedly. It was instilled in the beginning of our church 50 years ago when our founding pastor, Chris Blackmore, who is sitting upstairs in the overflow room so you guys can have seats in here, would just say, and here's a view, and here's a view, and here's a view. And in the end, he wouldn't go, and then here's the right view because it's mine. He would just say, and here's one of those views which I believe. And I can't tell you how many people as well have said, this is a kind church, this is a warm church, this is a welcoming church, this is a nice church. So there is a kind of unity here uh, in doctrine and a kind of unity in relationship that is very, very different than a lot of churches probably you have experienced and a lot of churches I have experienced. The church is supposed to be a glimpse of this remade world that Jesus says he's making. And it's an indication that God has done. And this unity must be possible because Jesus prayed for it. And it's not just Jesus. Paul, the apostle, here's Ephesians 4. Make some effort. Make, there it is, every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit. You were called to one hope. You think Paul is uh, emphasizing something here? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all 
who is over all and through all and in all. Here's Philippians 2. Tell me how you really feel, Paul. Therefore, if you have any encouragement of being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. So Jesus prays for unity. Paul prays for unity. Unity is not a threat to the church. To deny unity is actually not to be doctrinally pure. So Romans 14. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It's New Testament. I guess the men's Bible study, we're diving into Romans 14 right now to show you everything you're wrong about. Um, Good luck. You can be corrected later. (laughs) Romans 14 is what you do when a community with people, when there's a community that believes different things, different things about scripture, different things that they are convinced are obedience. You see, unity, you know this, right? Unity is super simple when you don't know the person. Hmm? Unity is easy theoretically. Unity is easy when you meet a Christian for the first time and you're like, wow, there's a real bond between us. The Christian on the airplane, the Christian in town, unity is much, 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 much harder the longer you go to the same church. Why do you think people bounce around? Unity is hard when you have to give something up. Unity is hard because people make mistakes. Anyone here made mistakes? People, it's because people sin and then people disagree with what to do with that person because situations arise that haven't happened in the past and then people open their Bibles and they come to different understanding of what scripture teaches. Unity is a doctrine so hard that Jesus prays for it. Think about that. This is so hard to do for Christians that one of the last things Jesus ever says is a prayer that we would be one. It's hard. We are rich and poor. We are old, some of you, and powerful, and some of you are young. Sorry, I didn't mean to call anybody out. (laughs) Powerful and powerless brand new believers, saints for 80 plus years, PhDs, completely illiterate, Republican, Libertarians, Democrats, Democratic Socialists. We are athletes, we are musicians, we are farmers, we are business owners, we are baristas, we are lawyers. I'm looking out, I'm seeing other things, all those other things too. We're single, we're married, we're divorced, we're widowed. We come from different stories. We have broken situations in the past. We have perfectly whole situations in the past. We are from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And all that diversity leads Jesus to say, oh Lord, may they be one. And leads Paul to say, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. This diversity constrains us. There are bound to be tensions. This isn't like if you're visiting and like, ooh, this church is fighting. We are not. But there are bound to be tensions. And Romans shows us that it's okay. That 
there have always been tensions and Paul gives advice now to the Romans of what to do when you see someone doing something that you don't think is the ideal way to follow Christ and then gives instructions to them of what to do when they look at you judging them. That's Romans 14. So, point one. There are in undisputable matters. Verse one, except the one who is faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. So right off the bat, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is there are disputable matters. There are things that are undisputable. I mean, remember I, I quoted 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters, uh, you know, agree with one another, agree on the same things. A few chapters later, Paul says this, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. In other words, Paul says, may everyone agree. And also, since you don't agree, there have to be differences because one of those differences will show which one God thinks is right. There are things worth fighting over. There are things worth dividing over. In other words, unity is not achieved by enthusiastically running to the lowest common denominator of theology. Unity is not achieved by ignoring what people believe. There are undisputable matters. And every Christian, all of us, you, me, we, we have choices about how to divide. And the danger is we lock ourselves into some sort of maximalistic scenario where there is a massive amount of agreement that must happen before I can unite with anybody. At the same time, unity at the expense of truth is not what's taught. That's not what Romans 14.1 is talking about. The Protestant reformers trying to reform the church said essentially that unity had been kept at the expense of truth and that they were reclaiming the gospel to say, hey, let's all forget about doctrine and just love Jesus is not what this is about. So you see the extremes, right? Like I had a friend once tell me fundamentalists will fight over every doctrine and liberals will fight over no doctrine. And th those are the ditches. One early theologian has tried to capture this, I think correctly, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, charity, in all things, Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? In the essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, in all things, Jesus Christ. Which is why I feel so comfortable in the free church. The free church was a bunch of Scandinavian rednecks, essentially they were, uh, very poor communities. Let's not put that part online in case someone from the free church sees that. Uh, my lips, that wasn't even written down. Just cancel that. They were coming out of stagnant state churches who had experienced revival and they wanted to be united around the essentials. And their slogan was, believers only, but all believers. And why did they say that? Because in scripture, there are things that are given more weight. For example, Paul talks about doctrines of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15. Brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. If you form, hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Keep going. For what I receive, I passed on to you is of first importance, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Do you see what is first importance? Do you see what 
matters, what is it? The gospel, the gospel by which we are saved, the gospel that matters more than anything else. But included in that are other doctrines. For example, according to the scripture. That is, scripture is first importance because if you don't have scripture, then you don't have the gospel because how do you know the gospel? From the word of God. You have that he died for our sins. What does that mean? That there's a doctrine of judgment that's of first importance. That is, you can't have unity around the gospel if you deny, according to the scriptures, if you deny died for our sins, if you denied he didn't take our place. There is no, de- there is no unity if we believe the death and resurrection doesn't deal a blow to death we deserve. Those are first importance. I mean, last year, I was at this church. I won't say which one, but it's to the south of us. And uh, the worship pastor started saying these words. He started talking about the cross. And then she said, we don't really know what happened there. And I looked over at some of the people from our church that were in that room. What did she just say? On Easter week, we don't really know what happened there. Can I be in unity with that person? I cannot. Why? Because they deny according to the scripture. I was like, have you read the Bible? The Bible tells us exactly what happened there. This week, I was listening to a sermon from the same denomination. Don't ask me where I get these, but I just scrolling, I guess. And this is how the pastor started the sermon. Before we start, I just want to name something from the reading of 1 Corinthians. You might have noticed we didn't read one part out loud. That's because it's yikes. That's because it's yikes. So unity can't happen, right? Over things of first importance. You you can't feel unity with someone that looks at the Bible and goes, yikes. I mean, in a sense of that can't be right. That isn't right. I don't like it. You can't feel unity with someone that goes, no, Jesus is not, did not rise from the dead. He's not the son of God. No, no, he's not. There is no unity. Now, when you come to Christ, do you know all those things? No. Do you know the scripture is the word of God when you come to Christ? Maybe. Like you're, you're five years old, you come to Christ and you're like, okay, kid, talk to me about the inerrancy of scripture. You know, like I don't do that to my kids. You know, you have to believe this doctrine. They don't, they don't do that, but I've shared the gospel from what? From the, according to the scriptures. Do I say, okay, kid, give me the definition of justification by faith? No. What do they know? They know Jesus loves me and died for my sins. That's it. There's a real unity I can have with that person. The thief on the cross, right, is the perfect example. Could the thief on the cross, when he gets to heaven, pass theology 101? No. What does he know? Jesus said, I could be here. That's it. So first, Paul places the gospel as first importance. There is weight. Second, Paul also gives latitude to people who disagree with him. Crazy. Here's Philippians 3. All of us then who are mature should take a view of such things. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. You you might think that's hilarious that Paul would say something like that. But what's Paul's argument? You know what? Uh, You don't agree with me yet, but you will. And for now, totally fine that you don't. He's giving latitude to them that there's disagreement. So now you come to Romans 14 at the end of this massive book on theology and the Christians are quarreling, verse 14, one, over opinions. And what's crazy about these opinions is that those people didn't think they were optional. They would have 
called themselves biblical. They would have studied the Bible. They would have said, I'm doing this because scripture says. And the other group would have said, and I'm doing this because scripture says. And he's trying to get them to say, listen, this uh, issue, which is is secondary, you got to get that out of the primary column right now. Here's the rub. The Bible demands unity and the Bible demands purity. This is what's so challenging. You read Galatians, Galatians 1 and 2, Paul's mad. Paul is not in the mood for unity with a certain group of people. He's tongue-tied over how mad he is at the Christians and the false teachers. So there is no lowest common denominator theology. It's just hard to go, okay, what is the purity test and what is the unity test? I like to think of this in concentric circles. You know, I, I, I was an unbeliever. I became a Christian who was a Protestant, who was an evangelical, who's, if you don't know any of these terms, totally fine, who's reformed, Baptist, and charismatic. Is my identity charismatic? No. Does anyone even know? Not really. Uh, reformed. Baptist, sort of. Evangelical, yes. I am a gospel maximalist. That is, I'm not making a concession. concession. It's a conviction about unity. I'm I'm not compromising the gospel by aligning myself to a whole different views. I'm humbling my personal convictions for the sake of what is not important and what is most important, that is the gospel, the gospel by which we share. Now, the addendum to this is this is not an excuse to be like, I believe the gospel, Bible study over. Hebrews 6 tells us this, move beyond the elementary teachings of Christ to be taken forward in maturity, not laying again the foundation. Then he gives this list of like basic things that we don't think are really that basic. And he goes, move on, go deeper. So there are undisputable matters. Number two, there are disputable matters. No church, no matter how pure, is identical with the global church. When you go that route, you end up in a cult. You, and some of you have been in cults. You know what I'm talking about. The leader says, I'm the voice of God. We believe exactly what is true. And you and your 15 members become the full expression of God's truth on earth. And there's literally no one else. Anyone been in a church like that? Anyone been in a Bible study like that? Anyone been around someone who thinks they've got it all figured out and every single thing and they don't know anyone else's opinion? And this is why unity is so hard and why Romans 14 is needed. Here's a summary from someone else of what Romans 14 is about. Paul is bent on stressing that Jesus is Lord of the teetotaling Sabbatarian vegan Jews and the bourbon-sipping Saturday shopping bacon-crunching Gentiles. (laughs) If God has justified them, They cannot condemn each other. If God has raised them up, they cannot put them down. If they belong to the Lord, they belong to each other. If everyone calls the Lord, Lord, they have to call each other's brothers and sisters. If God has accepted them, they must accept each other's. The Jewish Christians in Romans 14 and in Rome had these tendencies that were very ascetic. They uh, had these tendencies that they thought were the implications of the gospel. They were not people who had denied the gospel. They were not people who were not saying Jesus is not Lord and we're not saved by Christ. They had just not realized that Christ had set them free and specifically from Jewish rituals. And Paul doesn't tell them to stop. He tells everyone else, let them keep doing it. 
Paul doesn't put a purity test on their theology. He puts a unity test on their theology. Think about the argument. Here's verse five and six. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another person considers every day alike. Each one of you should be convinced in your own mind. So is Paul telling them to stop believing what they believe? No. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. And who, so if you love bacon, eat it. If you're a vegetarian, you hate bacon, don't eat it. For they both give thanks to God and everyone who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul's theology is that these people don't have to follow these commands. That, that, that the command, like he, he even says, these are, this is a misunderstanding of the gospel and you can still do it. He's a purist on unity, not in the details. Verse four, who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master? Servants stand and fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Verse 10, so then, why do you show, judge your brother and sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For with all, all will stand in God's judgment seat. So Paul's argument is that if they follow those regulations, it's worship to Christ, even though I know that it's not right. Ever made an argument like that? Or is your argument, I know it's not right and I need to disciple them out of it. Paul's not gonna disciple them out of it. He goes, you do that to the Lord, go for it. One of my professors at Trinity, Grant Osborne, who was the best, um, explains it this way. Those who had no convictions about dietary restrictions felt contempt for those who did. Think of any theological issue now. That Christ had removed all food laws and so they felt disdain for the ignorant others. So they're like, they just don't know Jesus' teaching. How ignorant of them. Those with strong convictions would naturally pass judgment on those who felt broke the laws of God. The one committing was committing the sin of pride the other was committing the sin of judgmentalism. So Paul reminds them that God has accepted the other. Think of the ramifications in any church for that kind of logic. You, you wanna have church on Saturday? You wanna have church on Sunday? You wanna be strict? Paul would say, I don't care. I'm, he would say, I know what scripture teaches, but I don't care. Do you think that Christians have done a good job with Romans 14? <laughs> have you? Have I? Let's do a test, verse 14. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ, so this is Paul, that nothing is unclean in itself, but, so however. So let's do a little fill in the blank. I am convinced, being fully persuaded of the Lord Jesus, that, fill in your theological stance, when do you go, however, if anyone wants to do the opposite, okay. Let's be safe and go political parties first. I, <laughs> I, heard a, I, I heard this story of a very conservative Southern Presbyterian guy, conservative politically, conserv conservative 
theologically, very Southern. You guys can picture this guy, everyone in their mind. And so it's part of his identity and he's very Presbyterian. And so he does what every very Presbyterian person does. He went to Scotland for a summer because that's where the Presbyterians started. And I'm gonna serve with the Presbyterians in the Highlands in a small town. Goes to this church, super strict, singing the Psalms only, Psalms only, no instruments. Anyone been in a church like this? No instruments, Psalms only, Sabbath really strict. And to his great surprise, they were socialists. And he was in absolute shock. How am I supposed to be in unity with these people who are way more strict than me on all these issues theologically and way to the left of me politically? Are you so insulated that you would look at your brother and sister who might criticize your political view and say, I can't be unified with you? Jesus had a zealot and a tax collector in his inner circle. That is the opposite ends of the political spectrum in the first century. And he seemed okay with it. Have you ever been to a different culture and you not even understood why are they even thinking in these political categories? They're totally different. They don't have the same history, same thought, same foundation. Can you be unified with them this election season? Might Romans 14 have something to say to all of us? Let's hit doctrine. Let's, let's even get safer. I am convinced being fully, this is why unity is hard, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that, think of the theology in your, you're going through right now, that therefore, what? What are the things you can say? I am fully convinced in the Lord Jesus. And we're not even the apostle Paul. Paul, are you saying you're fully convinced in the sense that you think you're right, but it's not scripture? Or are you saying, I'm fully convinced it is scripture, they're wrong, and it's still okay that they do it? Chris Blackmore gave me a helpful graphic this week as I've talked about these issues with him. It's in the bulletin, I think. Uh, He used to teach from it, and he's stealing it from another free church pastor of issues that are Uh, settled and dogma and issues that are doctrine and issues that are secondary. Is there a rapture? Is there not a rapture? Is Israel important? Let me just press everyone's button. Is Israel not important theologically today? What is God's sovereignty? Is it one way or another? Does Abraham's covenant still apply? To have tongues ceased or tongues not ceased? If you're not a Christian, you're walking here, what does any of this mean? We accept you too. Shall I keep going? It's just that here are all these things, division, 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 is this, is this, is this. And Paul's word is, I'm fully convinced of this. However, However, and for some people, this is jarring. I'll just, here's my story. I grew up liberal United Methodist. Anyone else? Liberal United Methodist? Okay, two of you, great. Maybe you can't relate. And then I came to Christ in campus ministry. Anybody? Okay, just three more, wonderful. Okay, and then I got discipled in a Bible church. And this church loved me, cared for me. I owe my life to them. And they had very specific super specific views on end times, charismatic gifts, baptism. I was a new believer. I remember thinking, well, these are the views of the Bible and everyone else has given up the Bible if they don't agree with me. I was in my holy huddle. I was confusing my reading of scripture with inerrancy. And then I went to the seminary of our denomination and goodness gracious, my teachers had not given up the Bible and they didn't agree with anything I thought. 
and I was confronted for the first time with this. Was I biblical or was I naive? And the answer was, I was naive. Now, there are many ways you can work this out, right? One is that you can say, I feel unity with Christians around the world, Christians and other denominations, but my church is gonna be super specific. Or you can say, which is what the free church says, I clearly, uh, would, I clearly affirm the core doctrines of the Christian faith and everyone here is welcome. That's what the free church is. Lutherans, Wesleyans, Methodists, Reformed, Baptists, infant Baptists, dispensational. If you don't know these words, I don't even know these words. Covenantalists. We are centered around what? The matters of first importance, the gospel. Now, how does this play out in an evangelical free church? Last point. I love our denomination because the essentials, unity, and the non-essentials, charity, it's always been the case. The free church founders were actually blind on this issue on one thing. They had essentially said, we believe all the essentials, but you can only believe one end times view. And it was so glaringly bad that we dropped it eventually in the free church. Like, in essentials, unity, except this one thing. The churches were formed because they wanted unity to matter. And they left open the two things in particular that divide the church. Do you know what the two things are that divide the church more than anything else? Baptism and communion. Isn't that ironic? I'll just focus on baptism. The fact that the free church allows for both baptisms is what they call a significant of silence issue. We debate, we will not divide. I'm not talking about infant baptism as in, if you're not baptized, you're not a Christian. That's division, that's a gospel issue. I'm talking about views that baptisms could, should happen essentially the way we do infant dedications here on Sunday mornings. In fact, the Presbyterians in our church, when we do these child dedications, they're like, just pour a little water on those kids. You're doing it anyway. <laughs> the, and I say as a Baptist, you're wrong. And they say, you're right. And then we banter back and forth. And then they say, show me child dedication in the Bible. And I say, oh, I can't, I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> the flexibility though is not derived out of apathy. It's derived out of how we relate to one another as Christians. Here's the Free Church's website. We do not believe that our differing views on this matter should prevent, hear the words from scripture, our unity in the gospel or full local church fellowship. In that sense, the statement of faith allows their views. I mean, symbols matter. These things matter. And they've been a source of division. Christ says, I'm gonna unite the church with baptism and communion. I was like, Jesus, didn't you know? Not only have we divided over it, we've killed each other over it as Christians. 1529, the first time a Protestant is called a Protestant is in a, an event where it was said that every Anabaptist, so essentially every Baptist, was to be put to death by fire or sword or by some other means. Most Anabaptists, so people who believed in baptism of adults, were tied up in chains and thrown into lakes. I want you to wrap your mind around this. There were more Baptist martyrs killed by other Christians in the 16th century than all Christian martyrs in the first 300 years of the church. Again, more Christians were killed by Christians over baptism 
during the Reformation than were killed by the Roman Empire in the first 300 years of the church. When we think about the Book of Martyrs and all the saints, we typically don't think about the Christians that killed other Christians, right? We think about the Roman Empire and how terrible they were and they lit Christians on fire in Nero's gardens and they threw them to the lions and they, they did all sorts of horrible things to them. It was the Christians on baptism that killed more people. And us Baptists bore the brunt from you Presbyterians. <laughs> it's okay. And you know where the Baptists fled? Rhode Island, over it. It's not just the free church that has tried to unite this issue. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote how he would allow differing views in his church. The free church's solution to this issue has always been, we will not divide. And so this church has done Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's for bribing someone later. Don't worry. <laughs> we will allow that we will not divide. Our church has done infant baptism since the beginning and believer baptism. And so the elders have been talking about just re-upping our commitment to the church again to say, listen, baptism is important. It's commanded by Christ it's a matter of discipleship. It's not optional. In many parts of the world, it's so important that you're not really in trouble till you get baptized. My friend was teaching Sudanese pastors. He's inside. All of a sudden, massive baptism breaks out. They're pouring pitchers on top of one another, celebrating, clapping, and they're all like Anglican and Baptistic. But pitchers, they don't have anywhere to go because if they go out in the river, they're all going to be killed. My friend works in China. There are, there are no issues until you say you're baptized. Same with Muslims. They convert, no big deal. You just don't say anything. But as soon as the baptism happens, that's the problem. It's serious business. But you know what else? It appears that the early church allowed for divergent opinions. And while they were arguing about it, they didn't, they didn't pull apart over this issue. Maybe the best way to describe this is even in story form. So I've served outside of a free church and I would run into this seeming contradiction all the time. And if you're a Baptist in particular, you'll know what this is like. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Baptist through and through. You're wrong if you're not a Baptist. That, I'm convictionally Baptist, okay? Like I, I think these things. Everything just fits together so good. You structure the church, you believe, you're baptized, baptism is entrance into the church. But in drawing this distinction, there's something that doesn't make sense. And that is that you give the Heisman to people who have a different view than you. In my own church, the pastor, was Baptist church, was so pained by this, he tried to convince the church, what do you mean we can't let people into our church and take communion who historically have had a different view than us? And the church voted him down. I've been helped by ministries who help root people in biblical views of the church. And the one in particular that's helped me the most denies membership to the church to people who have different views on baptism and denies communion to them, which essentially says Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, you're excommunicated. You're out. You can't be part of a church. You can't be part of this church. You don't agree with us. And you can't take communion. The Lord's Supper. The thing that's supposed to unite us, why? Because you don't believe this one view. 
I love our denomination. It recognizes divergent viewpoints and ends up saying, Christ is the source of our unity, not baptism. Christ is the head of the church. I'm not gonna give you reasons why people believe each one. I'm a Baptist through and through, but why would I allow that, right? Like, I'm a Baptist, I'm a purist, I I think I'm right. If I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't believe it. Why, Why do I do that? One is humility, and this is Romans 14. I recognize that those who don't agree with me are the majority in church history. That includes most of the people who have discipled me through their books. And so I have to be humble because if my belief is true, then I'm saying 80% of church history has never been baptized. Is that the conclusion of my theology? Am I gonna say to, if you don't know these names, don't, don't worry, Corey Ten Boom, Elizabeth Elliot, John Stott, George Mueller, who transformed England, Eric Liddell, Chariots of Fire, Tim Keller, J.I. Packer. You know what? No, you can't be here. Is that what I'm going to do? Humility. Holding my hands open to the overwhelmingly majority of Christians in the world. Do you know why else I have, my, I have some humility about this? Because of how I know my own position breaks down. I'll just give you one. You Baptists in the room, be broken with me on this view. I believe that scripture teaches you should believe and be baptized. I believe baptism is initiation right into the church. I try to convince you of this, okay? But my views get stretched every time I interact with a three-year-old. And the three-year-old says, I love Jesus. And then they say, are you my pastor? What does a Baptist have to say? No. Has that, does any Baptist ever say that? Of course not. But what do Baptists believe? You're not, I'm not your pastor unless you are a baptized member of the church. You see how the desire for purity and clarity breaks down on the fringes and ends up pushing away the unity of we can have with other Christians? And the second one is charity. Even if I'm correct, which I assume I am, because I wouldn't believe it if I didn't think I was. I would wanna welcome fellow believers because the gospel is what matters most. Scripture, the death of Christ, what it means for our lives. And in our church, last year, 60% of our elders were believer baptism, 40% infant baptisms. Our deacons are split, our staff is split, our church is split. That doesn't mean we have factions in the church. The factions are, I'm better than you if we did that. And it's the pride of saying my position is right, yours is wrong, and it's wrong in the sense of you are, you're just kind of less if you don't agree with me. That's factions. So this is how I reason Romans 14. Here's the practical application for you on this issue. You could do it on any issue. So what happens when I'm the pastor and an infant, I'm watching an infant being baptized and I don't believe it teaches that. I'm free to hold my position. I'm free to study scripture. I'm free to not perform it. I'm also free to celebrate. I'm free to say, you wanna honor the Lord. I'm not gonna judge you. You're the Lord's servant. I'm for you. I I know your intention. I'm celebrating with you. And you know, our our founding pastor, he actually did infant baptisms. He didn't even think infant baptisms were part of scripture, but he did them just to say, I don't wanna be a stumbling block to you. I wouldn't go that far, but you can see the heart. What if you're a person, when you hear me teaching on baptism, you don't agree with me? The 30, 40% of you that are infant Baptists in this room, you can 
Every once in a while, I stand up here and go, how many people disagree with me right now? And it's half usually, okay. Some of you hear me teaching that believers should be baptized or you, you, have, baptized, you have baptized kids as a, when they were babies and you hear me teaching. What do you say? You extend liberty to me. You do Romans 14. You go, I am fully convinced in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, I hold my position like this. And if you're a member of a church and you see an infant being baptized or adult being rebaptized, what do you do? You go, well, I'm gonna hold my position like this. I'm gonna express unity in the church. I don't agree with them at all. And if, if, and guess what? If the position just grates on you and you're just insides go on different positions, we have two services and we'll do it in one service and you can go to the other one. It's not a call to water down theology. I know many of you were baptized as infants and have wondered if you, uh, if you are accepted and people view you as true followers of Christ or if you're somehow in sin or something. I would say, I'm not gonna teach that view. I want you to be baptized, but I would never call you not a follower of Christ and I would never demean what you've done because of Romans 14. And so we could just say, you know what, let's just do polite banter, Darren will joke about baptism and we'll all just kind of go to our separate circles or we can unite under one roof knowing it's hard. Hmm? This is a hard issue. And I know I'm picking on baptism, I could do communion, I could do end times, I could do politics, I could do anything. I'm not a doctrinally maximalist person, I'm a gospel maximalist person. And I know people find this confusing because it's easier to have it all line up than just to say, Romans 14, I will not judge the Lord's servant. So there are undisputable matters. There are disputable matters. And then there's us <laughs> in the free church. Do I think like there'll be a rash of infant baptisms all of a sudden? No, there'll be like one for every hundred. Why don't other churches in conclusion do this? Why don't denominations do it this way? For some of you, this makes perfect sense. For others of you, you say distinctions are important. You say, hey, we make decisions in leadership, music, who should lead, and they're important. And so it's not that the other people aren't Christians, it's that they can't join our church. Do you hear what you're saying? The other people are Christians, but they can't be part of this church. Others will say anyone can join, but the leaders have to agree to a 30-page statement so there's unity in leadership. Churches are free to do it. I've been part of churches like that. But let's take heed, maybe in closing, on this one issue, what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, where he prioritizes the gospel over even baptism. Christ did not send me to baptize. And you're just like, has he heard of the Great Commission? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Maybe let that priority invade your heart as you interact with people in this room. And may Christ unite us around things that matter. Let's pray. Father, unity is hard because uh, we don't all agree on about 500 things in this room, but we all agree on Christ and his gospel. And so help us to hold our positions open-handed as we study the Bible together and help us to give grace to everyone else and leeway 
as they live out their conscience on baptism, communion, the end times, charismatic gifts, different views of theology, how to put the Bible together, and on and on we go. Lord, protect this church through the unity of the spirit, through the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.